You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I talked to a lady called Rebecca Stritchfield. And Rebecca is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and she's also a certified exercise physiologist and author of a book called Body Kindness. Um, she actually has her own podcast called The Body Kindness Podcast, so you can catch up with her there as well. And um, really, she is all about weight-inclusive counselling practice and how to help people make peace with food and for people who are in a point where their bodies are healthy and able to exercise, how to find the joy in exercise and do it for the the correct reasons, the healthy reasons, rather than those compulsive reasons that many of us know so well. And so Rebecca and I today are actually, we're talking about health at every size things, we're talking about um, weight inclusivity and how to have that, that kind relationship with your body, but we're mostly focusing on postpartum body image things, um, which I think is well, it's pretty interesting for me because I've never had a child. So I that's something that I personally have not had experience with. So I'm always wanting to learn about things that I haven't had any experience with. And I have had experience through my clients, but I haven't had that first-hand experience. So I was very interested in those things. And I do hope for those of you who have maybe um, been through a pregnancy, going through a pregnancy, this podcast will be helpful for you to understand that that bit at the other side when you've actually had the baby is really important and can be a crucial part of you maintaining your recovery, how you handle that bit at the other side. Anyway, here's Rebecca. I'm Rebecca Scritchfield. I am a registered dietitian and nutritionist and a certified exercise physiologist and a mom to two young girls. I am the author of a book called Body Kindness, Transform Your Health from the Inside Out and Never Say Diet Again. Um, And so it's a book really that is about helping people answer the question, um, what do I do if I care about my health and well-being, but I can't do another diet again? So whether that's because you've tried it a million times and you know that they don't lead to better health or happiness, um, that's usually the typical reason. We don't just try a diet once and say, oh, not for me and never again. We usually try dieting multiple times. And it's really related to my past experiences as a chronic dieter, as well as experiences in working with clients. So I have a private practice, it's based in Washington, DC, and I've been counseling clients since 2007. And I started out, um, I guess I would say now, kind of on the wrong side of the tracks because I was promoting diets and weight loss and all that stuff. And um, I was slowly evolving, realizing it wasn't helping me and that I was um, struggling with, you know, just intrusive negative thoughts, um, from my inner critic and judgmental thoughts and then difficulties with eating. Um, what I realize now is just my body, I was restricting and then my body was asking for food and I was giving it food. Um, and, uh, um, but at any rate, I, it, there was a confluence of me realizing this isn't the kind of life I want and I'm not even being helpful for clients, um, in the long run. So what do we do if, how do I live as a dietitian if I'm not promoting what I was taught in school, which was dieting? Yeah. Yeah. How hard was that change? I mean, within the industry, um, 
Because it's kind of going against the tide a little bit, isn't it? Or a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, how hard is the change? So I think, I mean, I think I want to say that the change for me is absolutely worth it. Like at this point, it's about living my values. And so I could never go back. And it's, it's interesting because I am uh, mentoring a group of dietitians and therapists um, in a supervision group right now for body kindness. And a couple of them are at the beginning stages and they are, they're uncertain, right? About the difficulties and how everything's going to evolve. But that's exactly what they said too, was just like, now that I see the literature on chronic dieting and have experience in working with clients with body image concerns and that, you know, dieting does not improve, um, health habits or well-being. you know, I know I'm never going to go back, but, um, I, you know, I just, you know, I feel scared about the process and the reason why I know I'm not going to go back is because I just, I couldn't do it. It's against my values. Um, so I certainly would not say, oh, it's really no big deal, right? Because we live in a diet culture and a body and image obsessed culture. So I would say from a dietitian perspective and also um, like an exercise and fitness professional perspective, just because those are the two main areas where I, I have expertise, I think that the big challenge is when you have to emotionally come to terms with um, – you know, pretty much everything you were taught was wrong or lacking, you know, it was almost like missing stuff, right? So when you study medical nutrition therapy for diabetes, right? Like that's, there is evidence about what would help a person with diabetes through self-care choices. Um, but what you also study about is weight loss. And then, you know, you're basically told that, you know, you help a person eat in a certain way and that weight loss is going to help improve outcomes. Um, and, and that's where the problem comes out, right? So it's not like, uh, information about how you would help someone manage diabetes is all wrong. It's just this idea that we're taught that weight loss is going to improve outcomes and that people, you know, if they just wanted it bad enough could lose weight and that, uh, a person is non-compliant if they don't lose weight. And 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 so it's, I guess it's to recharacterize, it's more like there's this big missing piece of the puzzle. Um, and so what you have to contend with is a lot of emotion. So I remember feeling guilty for clients I've hurt, shamed, unknowingly, um, angry that I was never taught this information in the first place, angry at diet culture. You know, I started dieting at nine. So there was a lot of like, you know, when I finally realized how bad, you know, entrenched I was, there was a lot of anger. Um, and then the third one is certainly this idea of, wow, well, what do I do now? And it takes time to figure that out and to, to have a new way of thinking and being and living in the world. Like when you're trained, um, that exercise is something you do to earn food or to make up for something you ate, like there's a lot of deprogramming that has to go into that, um, before you really do feel like, well, exercise is something I do, you know, for joy and also for taking care of my body. You know, like I would, I would say that 
if I'm going on, uh, I have like this walking slash running loop in my neighborhood and it's, it's, there's all these trees around and it's very nature and soothing. And that could be truly like a joyful movement type of experience. And then I might go to, um, a workout class that is focused on strength training and it's, it's meant to be intense, right? But in both of those scenarios, I'm not there because I hate my body or to try to, make my body lose weight or change its shape. I'm there because I know that, um, you know, strength, having strong muscles and bones is important. And I know that, um, you know, movement, cardiovascular health is important. And so there might be different types of movements I do for different reasons. Um, but you know, underlying all of it is not about because I need to fix my body or my body is a problem. And for me, I'm someone with thin privilege. So it's like, I can, that's just a choice, right? I can just choose that. And, um, it might be hard to deal with my inner critic. Um, but that's a decision that I can make. And with time, I start talking to myself in more kind, positive ways. But for someone who is at a higher weight, they can still make those choices. Like I'm not exercising for weight loss. I'm exercising to take care of my body, but the culture is going to make an assumption that they're there because they don't like the way they look. They're there because they are desperate to lose weight. And that is a problem. I've written about that for the Washington Post that about re removing fat shaming from fitness culture. Because even if you're trying to like support someone and motivate them, it's actually a microaggression when you say something like, oh, good for you. Like, you know, you know, good effort. And it's so great to see you here. Like that person could have lots of fitness experience. They could be a trainer themselves. Um, you know, but, but you're, you're kind of congratulating them for doing something about their body. And so that, that came out of some interviews that I, that, that I did for that article. And so it's, it's, there's a lot of layers to how you evolve out of, um, diet culture. You have to start with yourself Right. And then as you become more aware, you can also understand um, just the ways in which we make assumptions about people based on their weight and shape and appearance and the judgments we make about what their health must be like or what they must do for habits or care about their bodies. So um, you got to let yourself kind of evolve through it as well. Um, so I would not want anyone listening who is more at the very beginning to be like, oh, well, this sounds like a lot of work or it sounds like I might make too many mistakes or, you know, what, you know, do not lose motivation. It's just more of the understanding um, that, you know, once you realize that there's a discrepancy, um, that the, you know, the way you talk to yourself, the way you're living your life is no longer working for you. That is the only sign you need to start making changes in a direction that is more framed around your well-being and self-care. Um, but you're going to be doing that while existing in a culture that is constantly going to question, why would you make those changes? Sarah So in my private practice, I, I specialize in, in, um, in a health at every size approach. So, and I see people of all different, um, weights who have concerns about their weight in their body and body image issues. And I also, um, work with clients who have eating disorders at any stage of their recovery. So there's a lot of universities near me. Um, so sometimes I'll get, um, college students who were, you know, working on recovery, while in school, um, and they may go to a higher level of care um, if they need it 
more on a summer break. Um, so that's something that I work with. And I also, um, specialize in working in high-risk pregnancies. So that's usually um, people who are pregnant with multiples or who have a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Um, and certainly I see women throughout all the stages of pregnancy, but I also, um, it's a very important, you know, pregnancy is a very important and vulnerable time in a woman's life. But also if there's any, um, you know, challenges, uh, with whether it's food aversions or, um, you know, being able to, uh, do what you need to do to take care of your body and your baby. Like I'm thinking of a client who actually had, um, bulimia who wanted support and, um, throughout her pregnancy and, in, in, um, managing her recovery and, you know, actively choosing not to purge throughout her pregnancy. So, you know, there, there could be a lot of intersecting issues there. Um, and, and a lot of blame and shame, you know, someone gets gestational diabetes and it can be very scary. Um, and so when you are someone who has a health at every size approach, you are knowledgeable about harm reduction and shame reduction and, um, building self-compassion, um, it, you know, regardless of somebody's weight or shape or appearance. And that can be really helpful in their healing too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we were going to talk about body image and pregnancy, right? Yep. Yep. Pregnancy and postpartum, I think. Mm -hmm. So where should we start with that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I guess in generally speaking, the idea of understanding like you know, like what do we even mean when we talk about body image is it's really just the, um, it's, it's a picture that we create, um, in our minds, uh, that, that goes with us throughout our life. And it's, um, it's how we see ourselves, Um, and, and yes, in an appearance sort of way, but also in what our mind tells us that may influence how we see our appearance, um, there is comparisons that we'll do. Um, so out of social comparison theory, the idea that we will compare ourselves to others and make up stories like somebody else's life must be so much better, um, you know, based on a comparison of our appearances and that could actually increase our own levels of shame. Um, so I think understanding that pregnancy or not, we all have a body image. And for women, most women struggle with their body image. Um, I want to say it's 80% or above. I, I, I don't have my, I've got this great um, clinical book on body image that I've been reading recent research and I don't have it at my desk right now. Um, but I'm just kind of mentally recalling general trends from that. And um, it's basically a persistent um, problem. And pregnancy is a time where our bodies are changing. So there's a lot of increased anxiety and uncertainty because, of course, understanding that, you know, our cultural message is the worst thing that could happen to a woman is she could gain weight. And yet in pregnancy, you're supposed to be gaining weight. Um, and then there's even twisted messages around, well, if you're a higher weight, maybe you should gain less weight or maybe even not gain any weight at all. And it just becomes... Um, you know, very overwhelming as far as like, okay, you're pregnant, you want to have a healthy baby and you get these messages. that's like oh, everything you do, you know, could make or break your baby's health. So, um, what I find 
is people do a little bit too much research. Um, and with the internet, you can find anything online that says, you know, um, do this, don't do that. And it can actually be a time of increased anxiety. So, um, <clears throat> you know, what's interesting about it is that there are, I think everybody's pregnancy is different. And I have two girls and both of my I mean, both of my pregnancies were very different, but they're also different um, among different individuals. And, um, you know, I think that we have a lot of pressure to like enjoy every moment of our pregnancy and we actually might be uncomfortable. So being able to say that we're uncomfortable, um, you know, whether it's because we're feeling nausea or we're tired, um, you know, people will make the assumption of like, aren't you so excited? You know, don't you feel amazing? And it's like, Oh, I better not say that I, I have low energy today. So I think there's this sense or there's this added pressure of, especially if in a first time pregnancy, because it's all new for you, you don't know what to experience, um, or what your experience is going to be like so that you're afraid of, being honest about what's really happening and what you really may need because, oh, this is supposed to be, um, you know, only a positive experience. And, you know, so that's something that I would say is like allowing yourself to feel your true feelings is really important because even negative emotions are, are beneficial. They, they tell you that your body needs something. So, um, feeling nausea might mean that your body needs something to eat, um, and some fresh air and maybe more of like a, a gentle stroll rather than, um, whatever other type of workout you might've planned to do. Um, because those things can help you feel a little bit better or at least, um, help you make it through some, some difficulty. Uh, so yeah, so, you know, you know, I think that in, in my experience, women who are pregnant, they have concerns about gaining weight in a certain correct type of way. Um, even comparing to those charts, like when I was pregnant, I, um, I didn't necessarily gain per trimester exactly how, how charts said I should, uh, you know, I, so I really chose to take a real flexible approach. And with my first pregnancy, got on the scale backwards, um, had a doctor I really trusted and it was, you know, it was, um, it made it easier kind of going through the, the process of pregnancy. And, um, and there's of course the expectation, right. That you're going to get your body back, I guess is what they say, you know, especially you hear it among celebrities, but it's celebrated how quickly postpartum women can quote, get their pre-baby body back. But in my opinion, um, you're always postpartum, right? You are always, um, there, there isn't just a, a, a short window where that's a postpartum period. Once you've had a baby, you're always postpartum. And, um, just, yeah, even the idea that your number one goal as a new mom should be right. to see how quickly you can get your baby's body back is ridiculous. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sad, isn't it, really, if you think about it? Mm -hmm. and, um, well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a cultural thing. Like, we don't, <clears throat> I don't think that we really respect 
pregnancy and even, you know, the, um, and the postpartum period, whether it's from how much, um, maternity leave we get to the support a woman really needs and the caring and nurturing a woman really needs. Um, it can feel very isolating and, um, and yeah, you know, I've, I've certainly seen that in my, in my counseling practice where, um, there is, you know, you're, you're tired after having a baby and you're also up, your sleep is disrupted. And for whatever reason, because the most important thing we should be doing is working on our, getting our pre-baby body back, um, that then we feel like every exercise we could have done was a failure because it wasn't hard enough, good enough. We haven't lost weight fast enough. And that's what we really want to step away from and really resist. It's just this idea you know, that's not to say, oh, Rebecca, are you saying never exercise again? It's like, no, <laughs> not at all. Right. But it's like, how do you reframe that putting your baby in a stroller and going on a short um, walk where you can get some fresh air and um, just relax and breathe and that, that that is physical activity and that is good. Um and, you know, the same thing for nourishment, you know, that if you're somebody who used to spend a lot more time cooking, um, you don't have to spend a lot of time cooking to be well nourished and you don't have to eat perfectly or follow a prescriptive diet to be well nourished. And so just really reframing expectations for what that would look like too. You know, there may be days where you really are craving some sort of salad with a yummy dressing and protein. And guess what? There's going to be days where you're like, I'm tired. I don't want to cook. And I feel like pizza. And there should be no moral difference between those two types of food choices at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. Um, but we do. We yeah. judge. <laughs> yeah. When you were saying what you were talking about there, about the sort of um, feeling that expectation on somebody to lose or lose baby weight as the priority as soon as they've had a child and, um, it made me think of something that I heard on on uh, another podcast, Women's Hour, which is a BBC thing recently. And I think it's one of the royal family, Kate Middleton, I think, has just had a baby. And there was all this discussion of how she sort of came out of hospital after having this baby looking just perfect. And is that actually okay? Or should she have actually looked a little bit more real? Does it add to the pressure for women to think, you know, I need to be able to come out with my hair flowing and... <laughs> Yeah, so I I was watching that and I read a couple of um articles and some of the comments on it and uh what what I love is about how social media can help bring about this this I guess almost like a rebuttal type of a response. Um so yes, as human nature we're going to do that social comparison. We're going to look at a picture of Kate Middleton and be like, wow, her hair is perfect. She's in a dress. She's smiling. She's in heels, right? <laughs> and um, That alone she, is enough know, for me. I know. I know. I rarely wear, wear heels, you know, but like, and, and she had a baby seven hours ago or something. And it was like, and so there could be this nature of like, I could never do that. And so my life sucks, et cetera, right? And then it's like, you read more in the story and people comment and they talk about, you know, how many handlers she has and all the resources that she has. And I think that's one way that helps people, um, mitigate the, um, 
that comparison pressure to reduce the like sort of the shame that might result. But the other great thing is when people started posting their own pictures and it's like just the complete opposite, right? Like no makeup, disheveled, greasy hair. I remember women posting pictures of them wearing their their mesh underwear and ice diapers, <laughs> <laughs> which I was fully subscribing to as well. And um, so that, what's great about that is you also see what's common and normal. And those also get lots of likes and clicks. And those can help us feel good and feel like we're not alone and just sort of help to mitigate that social comparison. Um, you know, I was also inspired by Serena Williams who recently had a baby and there's been some, um, you know, she is, 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 um, you know, arguably the best tennis player in the world. Um, and she is, you know, quoted as saying that there's a fourth trimester and I'm in my fourth trimester. And I think that's something that's really powerful about the need to support women in the postpartum period. And she talked about, um, being very honest about like, I remember not being able to find my baby's bottle and it made me cry and, and things like that do happen. You're sleep deprived. And so you see Serena Williams as a strong, powerful, can do anything, superhuman athlete. And at the same time, because she's willing to be honest about what it's really like, it's like, and just losing my baby's bottle made me cry. Um, so I love following her, what she's saying in her postpartum, um, window. And she's also talking about her, her size and appearance and, um, you know, saying like my, my body isn't meant to be a size four, so I'm not going to try to be a size four. And that's just the words that she used. But I think that it was really powerful to say, I am strong and I'm not going to try to kind of contort my body into a smaller size, despite what society might say about me, um, that that's just not kind of like, no thanks. And we need to hear so much more of that. We need, especially from celebrities, um, because they have more power, right? The, the, the financial power and their popularity, those are, those are all forms of social power. So when they make statements, it has much more impact than, um, you know, if somebody who has less social power, like someone like me makes a statement. I mean, I, I, I hope it helps people, right. But not being Serena Williams, I don't have the reach that she has or that sort of that, that strong impact. So, you know, I think that part of what we can do is, um, make sure that we follow and support, the celebrities or the influencers on social media who, who are living the kind of life we want to live. And then we, we unfollow and we just sort of take pauses away from the magazines that don't help us live a better life or, you know, the, the, the articles, you know, skim the headline and ask yourself, is this, is this helpful or not? Cause not everything is going to be helpful and just stop consuming some of this media that then just sends you down that spiral of criticism and shame and judgment. Um, we really can say, um, Amy Poehler has this phrase I love and she says, good for her, not for me. And so you could use that for any little thing that might be out there, even if it's someone you normally like and follow. It's just like, you know, this is not for me. Let me just turn that off and tune it out because it's in that rumination and that overthinking where shame really grows and thrives. And it could lead to significant, um, 
you know, problems in our well-being and mental health and our sense of self-worth and self-esteem. And those things all are going to impact our ability to take good care of ourselves, which is, you know, if we care about our health and well-being, it's those daily compassionate self-care choices that really help us um, create the kind of habits and the kind of life we want. But if we're always comparing ourselves with perfectionism and judgment and shame, um, we're, we're not even going to be able to do little things like drink a glass of water in the morning, you know? Right. Right. And I think good for them, not for me is for anybody with a, a history of an eating disorder is, is a pretty good phrase to remember all the time <laughs> when we're surrounded by this diet culture. And, um, I think though, that do you think that people say, say somebody might have, uh, had a history of an eating disorder, restrictive eating disorder, and they might, they might have been recovered and got pregnant. Do you think that that time, that, that, um, fourth trimester, do you think that that is a higher risk for that person to maybe go into energy deficit again because they might get sucked into that? I've got to, you know, work out as soon as I've had this baby and, and actually not look after their body. I imagine that having a child is quite an energetic drag on the body. And I haven't had one, so I wouldn't know. But I'm just imagining that that's, that's going to be quite a big deal for the body. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, we, we need, I mean, we need time to heal and recover. And so your next doctor's appointment is about six weeks after you have a baby. Seems like a long time. Yeah. Well, you're, you're kind of sore. I mean, you're, you know, it was, I was wearing my ice diapers for a couple of weeks, you know, you, you know, I left the hospital still bleeding. (laughs) Yeah. So it is, it is, uh, it is a miracle and it is a lot on the body. Um, and so, and so you're right. You know, I mean, the fact that, that just culturally all, all genders don't holistically know or understand what goes in the process just shows the level of isolation that can occur. Um, but to, to specifically go back and answer your question. So it's a, it's a recovery period for anyone. Um, but with respect to, an eating disorder history, I mean, anything could be triggering. And so, um, you know, I, I have a client list right now of folks who are, um, postpartum who have had eating disorders before their baby who, um, have dealt with triggers and who have dealt with some relapse issues. So yes, it's absolutely possible because anything could be triggering. Um, you know, I think it really just, the number one thing is going to be, will you let yourself say, I have needs and my needs matter? Because no matter what negative thoughts you're having, no matter what, like maybe you even started on some restrictive type behaviors or even that, oh, well, whole 30 is not a diet. Like, you know, even, but deep down, you know, that that is not what your healthy self would say, just your ability to say, I have needs and my, my needs are valid and worth it. I think that's the only thing you need to be able to do, because if you can say that out loud and, 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 and know that to be true, no matter what your negative thought bullies are saying about it, because it might say, but, 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 you know, and give some sort of reasons for why you should go back to behaviors. If you can say that I have needs and my needs are, are, are valuable, that is the first step to then doing the right thing, which is 
getting the support you need. We all need a support system. And, um, and so acknowledging that you have needs, then getting some type of a support, whether it's talking to a friend, any helping professional you may trust, um, and to just get the feelings out in the open that now they can exist. And when your feelings can exist and your thoughts can exist, even if you feel guilty for those thoughts, right? You might feel shame, you know, you know, I can't believe I'm here again. Um, you know, this is not the kind of person I want to be. That's actually good information. That is information that whatever's happening with you right now is not in line with your values. And that's going to lead to your next decision from that conversation with a friend. Then you decide to contact someone from your care team before you decide to find somebody who specializes in postpartum well-being. Um, you know, like you can then take meaningful action that is, um, you know, even if you feel attached to like, gosh, I'm, you know, like I'm, you know, I, I really feel attached to, um, to, to, to doing a past behavior. So I'll just use an example. The client I mentioned earlier who w struggled with bulimia and she did not purge during her pregnancy. And, um, but it's, it's sometimes it was actually in the later postpartum, she started purging again and she did get back in touch with me. And so we worked again on no longer purging. And then she was doing some chewing and spitting behaviors and it was that she was dealing with um, sort of, you know, when she felt her anxiety escalate, she would reach for food and it didn't matter what it was because she had also been working on intuitive eating when she realized she wasn't hungry. She would feel guilty about eating when she wasn't hungry and then she'd spit it out. So what we were, so, you know, it's still a behavior. She knows she doesn't want to do it. Right. But what the work ends up being is understanding that in intuitive eating, sometimes you eat when you're not hungry and that it's okay to eat and, and as, as a response to anxiety. And what would it feel like, even if she became aware that she was eating something that she didn't want to eat, what would it feel like to say, it's okay. It's okay to be here right now. This is nourishment too. So let me finish chewing let me rest and digest. Um, and let me do some mindful breathing and relaxation. This is going to be okay, right? And so it's like about having that action plan and that permission to, you know, to not be perfect, right? Like we're humans. And if she's using intuitive eating to say you only eat when you're hungry, that's actually a mistake for intuitive eating. Do you see what I'm saying? And so then she, now she could say, okay, you're right. So let's work on not chewing and spitting because actually it's a form of intuitive eating to be able to soothe emotions with food. While at the same time, I work on other ways of noticing my anxiety and practicing positive self-care so that sometimes I might not reach for food. So I think that that's a really good example of, um, she still struggles deeply with, um, body image and, and weight concerns and, and not all clients with eating disorders, you know, have a direct appearance related, but this particular client does. And so it has been interesting to work with her over the past several years of watching. She has done tr a tremendous amount of work in her recovery and, um, you know, things do get better, but then there are these versions of relapse, um, where what she does as a behavior might change and shift. But the, th the key situation for her of why it's not relapsing worse is that she's doing that initial step. I have needs. My needs are important. And you know what? I, 
I, I need some help. I need some support. And as long as you can do that, it doesn't matter what you're struggling with. You will get the help that you need and you're worth the help that you need. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, um, the, was it 360 diet? Uh, whole thirty. I mean, I don't even know what three sixty is, but that sounds awful too. Probably will put that as well. I I lose track. Um, I know that you have some thoughts on that, so maybe just quickly, um, because there's probably people listening to this that are looking at that or thought about that. Sure. So I can share a link to an article I did for U.S. News, which is just it's sort of about like. Uh, For people who's like, but I don't understand Whole30 sounds healthy enough, sort of what's the problem with it? And the way that I addressed it in the article was that there are people who have, so Whole30 will say it's not a diet and it's about all these inflammatory things and it's going to help you feel better. But then yet they say, um, you know, there are people who have concerns about their relationship to food and their weight and they'll say right on their website, like, oh, well, if you follow Whole30, like your body composition has to improve. It just has to. And it's it's basically ridiculous. It's not science-based. The people who created it are not experts. I mean, they're rich because they've sold best-selling books because they play right into diet culture. Um, but it's not what you would do medically if someone had a food allergy or intolerance. And you know, there are people who came out and said, well, I liked Whole30 and blah, blah, blah. You know, you're always going to find people who don't agree with your point. But by and large, a lot of people were like, thank you for bringing these issues up. Um, because you know, at the end of the day, you can't say you're not a diet and then say, Oh, well, this is going to change your, your body composition. That is a diet. And then I went into a lot of the, um, you know, emotional damages that, that can come with whole 30 and things like that. So I'd be happy to share, um, those links as well as links to some of my other writings and, um, and, um, and yeah, I'd love to share a little bit about the, the research that we're doing right mm-hmm. now. Sure. Yeah. Look, yeah. Cool. So, um, I'm really excited to be working with Dr. Jennifer Webb and she is a, um, the lead investigator on a research project. She's based out of UNC Charlotte and she runs a lab that is grounded on mindfulness and positive psychology. And those are central to the body kindness philosophy. So she reached out to me about wanting to study um, how body kindness can help enhance body image in postpartum women. So right now we are doing focus groups um, in um in Charlotte. And there's also a secondary component that I'm helping to collaborate with, which is a, um, a research survey. So, um, people who qualify will be women who are pregnant or up to five years postpartum and who are living in the U S and who have read body kindness. Um, and so to learn more about it, you can go to bodykindnessbook.com slash research. And from that page, you can get a link to do the survey, but you can also get, if you, um, if you don't have a copy of body kindness, you can click a link. Um, we have a limited number of free electronic copies. So what you can do is go there, click the link, get the free copy, read the book, and then go back and take the survey once you've read it. Um, and so we're going to be conducting that research this summer. And, um, 
and yeah, that's just, um, it's what we're trying to do with the survey is take a look at what the material we have in the book and how, um, what they're finding helpful in the postpartum, like during pregnancy and postpartum, as far as self-care and well-being. And then the, the goal is between the survey and the focus group is to then, um, create tailored, um, um, self-help, um, programming for, um, for women as they're going through this transition. And anyone who does a survey, in addition to getting the free copy of the book, there is a, um, a body kindness after baby electronic toolkit that I've created. So it's a video and, um, a series of resources that you can get. Um, and you get a link to that once you've completed the survey. And I'm just wondering, do you think a lot of your motivation to, to create these resources for people after they've had a baby, I mean, does that, does that come out of your own experience and, and realizing there wasn't much there? <laughs> That's a good question. So, so the, it's interesting because when I, when I came up with body kindness, I was like, I want to help as many women as possible. And so my, my focus was more about anyone, any, any really anyone who wants to step away from dieting. But if you read it, you'll see there's only one male story. So there's a lot of female perspective and my perspective is a female. Um, so I apologize to men, but it does work for men. Um, you know, and hopefully we'll have more tailored resources. Um, you know, because men also deeply struggle with their body image concerns. Um, but so with respect to the postpartum period, uh, you know, I, it, it's it's interesting because there's some research that shows that women who breastfeed, they verbalize like a um, body appreciation in some research, like, you know, yes, my body looks different, but look at all these amazing things my body can do. And, and I also believe that, um, that, you know, I mean, whether or not you breastfeed, I think that you can have that mindset of body appreciation. And that's really important. Um, because having a healthy body image doesn't mean you're never going to think a negative thing about your body, but it's your ability to express appreciation for your body that helps you build resilience and body image. Um, in the postpartum window myself was actually when I was writing body kindness. And so my inner critic was very strong. So my, my youngest was six months old. So I had a six month old and a one and a half year old. And I just, you know, everything I did sucked, whether it was my writing sucked or that walk I did in the stroller wasn't enough, or, you know, you're making pasta again, you suck. You know, it was, and it was like, it, what was so interesting about it was that it wasn't how I normally talked to myself and what the problem was, it was how I used to, but the problem was, is that I was going through a very difficult time in my life where I was tired and where I was uncertain of how to be a mom. I I don't think I want to do it perfectly, but I really felt like I was making a lot of mistakes. And so it was this, there was this constant, um, self-flagellation and that really hurt my self-esteem and my well-being. And, um, so when I, you know, when people read body kindness, I'm like, look, you know, I, I wrote that to help me as well. It's, and it's grounded on research and positive psychology. Um, and, and, you know, I think that because of this, the time of transition with, um, becoming a mom and also that your body does change after a baby and it, you doesn't necessarily go back to the way it 
looked before. And even over time, even without babies, bodies change over time. So I think that, you know, it can be particularly helpful for um, that window because there's a lot of change and transition that you might be adjusting to. Um, but certainly anyone who um, just feels like I need to talk to myself more kindly, I need more self-compassion, I need less shame, um, they're also going to find help and support for that. Big thank you to Rebecca for coming on and talking to me this week's podcast. You know, I imagine that quite a few of you listening to this will have had children. And um, I've never wanted to have children, so I never did. Um, But even though just the process or the idea or the concept of being pregnant fascinates me because it's such an incredible feat from the human body you're growing another person inside of you and then giving birth. I mean, that has to be traumatic in the proper sense of the word for for the body. It's actually going through a process that's creating a lot of muscular, internal... There's just a lot happening. Come on. It's like, it is incredible. And so I think that for... There's a lot of physical things going on when a person is pregnant and then when that person gives birth. And a lot of those physical things are to do with hormones as well and thoughts and feelings and emotions. And it's probably just an incredibly messed up time, actually. In fact, if I didn't have to have the child afterwards because I don't want to have children, I would go, I would probably go through it and just to see what it's like. Well, that's not true. I wouldn't because obviously if I was invested in doing that, I'd be a surrogate or something. I do not want to do that. So that's not entirely true, but I am really fascinated in just the concept of what happens to the human body when it does something that epic. And and then you've got to sort of think about, well, from the context of a person who has had or does have an eating disorder, there's this added layer of complexity on it. And maybe if somebody is just fabulously fully recovered and very robust, then none of that complexity is there. They're going to feed themselves. They're going to sleep. Fuck you to diet culture. They don't care about it anyway. So they're not going to worry about the baby body afterwards. But for a lot of people, I imagine that that's not entirely going to be the case. And so it does add this other level of complexity and probably can be a time where one's brain starts to listen to messages from outside and maybe be even more prone to just trying to look the way that they think that the culture wants them to look and follow things that everybody else who's had a baby should should be doing apparently. Um, And I think that I really like the idea that people like Rebecca are actually focusing on this, Uh, people who have been through the process and who also have experience in helping people with eating disorders and body image stuff because it's a big deal and I think that if you ask if you are anywhere close to struggling with any of this stuff then it's a really good idea to seek support because your body is very precious and we wouldn't want anything bad to happen to it in this time when things are so important that's all for this week thank you for listening to this week's podcast cheers and until next time cheerio